Thank you to Kira and Eric and the other members of the Virginia Law and Business Review for setting up this uh, session. Uh, also to our uh, panelists and to all of you for coming out today. Um, I'm just going to open with a sort of brief comments giving an overview of uh, the issues we'll be discussing and then we'll turn to some prepared questions we have. I'm going to try to leave some time at the end for you all to ask questions so if uh, things uh, cross your mind that you'd like to ask about we'll, we'll try to have 10 minutes at the end where you can jump in. Um, so the relationship between investors uh, and managers in the U.S. is governed by two uh, distinct and very different bodies of law. So federal securities law uh, regulates the terms on which companies can tap our capital markets to raise money. Uh, it's federal, so there's really only one option. And it's mandatory. If you want to use those capital markets, you have to do so in compliance with the rules that the SEC uh, and the legal framework sets up. The norm underlying securities law is typically and historically disclosure. That is, it shies away uh, from venturing into substantive regulations of how companies act in favor of requiring those companies to tell their shareholders how they are acting, thereby enabling shareholders uh, to participate uh, in the governance of the firm. Corporate law, on the other hand, regulates the relationship between shareholders and the managers of the firm substantively. It's state law. And not only is it state law in the sense of being made at the state level, but uh, a firm can pick the state corporate law at the time that it incorporates that's going to apply to the company. This means that states uh, compete in some sense for corporate charters. And a question uh, that motivates a lot of the disputes here is whether that competition is to provide firms with value-maximizing rules that enhance shareholder welfare or to provide managers with advantages vis-a-vis -vis shareholders that allow them to enrich themselves. The fundamental norm of corporate law is contract. It tends to be optional to give flexibility. And after all, the entire corporate form is something that a business chooses because it meets some need that the business has. Uh, this characterization of the divide between the two areas of law is still pretty much accurate. But over the last couple of decades, we've seen a number of instances in which the federal government has intervened in areas that have traditionally been relegated to the province of state corporate law. So the Sarbanes-Oxley Act included a number of provisions, including m mandating certain internal controls uh, that the CEO and CFO certify financial statements. Uh, we've seen numerous changes with respect to uh, corporate governance as it relates to executive compensation, including uh, certain disclosure-oriented changes, some substantive changes around executive loans, and procedural changes, like giving shareholders a vote. Uh, other changes include uh, regulating the composition of certain committees, like the audit committee, uh, disclosures around related party transactions, and so on. But one particular um, tale maybe illustrates a lot of the themes that are important here, and that's uh, Rule 14A11. Uh, so Rule 14A11, proxy access, was designed to enable large shareholders of a firm to nominate uh, candidates to the board of directors on the company's own proxy, thereby uh, avoiding the cost of a full-on uh, proxy fight. And so the first theme this illustrates is that when the federal government intervenes in the corporate governance, it tends to do so to put a thumb on the scale in favor of 
shareholders, at least in favor of shareholder power. This rule was first proposed in 2003 after the accounting scandals, Enron, WorldCom, and the like, and then reproposed in 2010 as uh, pursuant to Dodd-Frank after the financial crisis, which illustrates a second theme, uh, which is that these things tend to happen after there's been a major crisis in corporate governance. This rule was ultimately struck down by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, who felt that the SEC could not establish that the benefits of the proposed rule were going to outweigh the costs of the proposed rule. One important aspect of this rule that illustrates yet another theme is that it was mandatory that every firm was required to comply uh, with this requirement. And when the federal government mandates something like this, it displaces not only the state competition for corporate charters, but also the norm that state corporate law tends to have a lot of flexibility to it. And how we feel about that uh, turns on whether we think that flexibility is fundamentally going to benefit shareholders or managers. Interestingly and relevantly for the purpose of this discussion, proxy access has enjoyed a kind of vibrant second act since the federal intervention was struck down by the DC circuit. The Delaware uh, corporate law was amended to permit firms to op opt in to proxy access. A lot of firms have chosen to do so, and this has been one of the hot topics at a lot of shareholder meetings recently. Should shareholders be able to nominate directors on the company's proxy? So in one sense, this looks like a success story, right? Federal overreach was brushed back by the DC circuit, and in its absence, we've seen creativity and flexibility at the state level. On the other hand, we might still worry about those firms that are not permitting their shareholders uh, proxy access, or those firms that need it the most and are being non-responsive to their shareholders along multiple dimensions. These questions look like they're going to take on a lot of importance in the next couple of years because we appear to be entering a period uh, where the pendulum may be swinging back towards the states. With Republicans in control of the federal government, lots of turnover at the SEC and other regulators, explicit talk about rolling back Dodd-Frank. It seems we're in uh, for a period in which federal uh, intervention in corporate governance may be rolled back in favor of the states. Uh, so with that background, let me turn uh, to our first question for the panelists. Uh, so uh, academics have observed that the separation of corporate and securities law has been eroded uh, in the ways I described over the last couple of decades. Once uh, most prominently with Sorbanes-Axley, again with Dodd-Frank, and in some other areas in the interim. Uh, is this part of a trend that leads us to ever-increasing federal encroachment uh, into corporate governments? Are these isolated instances? And either way, is this something uh, that we ought to be concerned about? So Julia, I'll start with yes, you. Yes, I'd say that in my judgment, the federalization of corporate governance began long before 2002 in Sarbanes-Oxley. The New Deal era securities laws and regulations had powerful effects on how many corporations were operated. And very importantly, the 1968 Williams Act regulated decisions that go to the very heart of corporate governance, ones relating to changes in control of the corporation and ones relating to the shareholder franchise. And for decades, the SEC has made very aggressive use of its authority under the Williams Act and other securities laws, as Professor Curtis uh, referred to earlier just now. So I would argue that Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank 
are better understood as the continuation of an already established long-term trend than a significant change in direction. But what I do see as a very important change in the regulation of corporate governance over the last two decades isn't so much federal power versus state power as more limited, more predictable federal power versus more expansive, harder to um, vaguer uh, exercises of, uh, of federal power. Let me explain. Over the last couple of decades, there's been an increase from many perspectives in the so-called administrative state. Administrative agencies have gotten a great deal of authority, and right now, with the uh, recent nomination and confirmation of Neil Gorsuch to the United States Supreme Court, these issues of the limits of the administrative state have really come to the fore. And particularly for the SEC, the possibility that there is going to be a significant reconsideration of the sorts of deference that courts will accord to administrative agencies is a very important development. As Professor Curtis noted, the SEC has been a bit of a problem child agency, at least in the eyes of some courts, most notably the DC Circuit. So things could be about to get really interesting. Um, so um, I uh, also think that uh, um, the framing of, of the subject is going to change somewhat uh, and uh, it's not going to be uh, uh, any more exactly along the lines of federal versus state uh, regulation. Uh, and I think that uh, part of the reason is that um, in recent uh, years, private ordering has become uh, significantly more and more influential in shaping corporate governance. Uh, so that's as a result of the combined effect of shareholder proposals for proxy access, majority voting that have gained a lot of success. Uh, these were assisted by uh, voting recommendations of the proxy advisory companies and also by uh, pressure from hedge fund activists. So these three components to together have created pressure on companies to, ch to change their uh, corporate governance uh, uh, in a way that uh, most times empower shareholders. Uh, so I think that uh, the question now uh, is going to be less uh, whether uh, 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 Sarbanes, there's going to be a rollback of Sarbanes or, or Dodd-Frank to some extent, but uh, how uh, this process will, uh, whether this process will continue or whether it will be limited. And interestingly, uh, the same people who uh, kind of opposed federal regulation uh, opposed uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, opposed Dodd-Frank, uh, 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 relying on the argument that we should not federalize corporate law, are now pushing for federal laws uh, that would limit uh, proxy advisory companies, so the proxy advisory reform, uh, limit uh, hedge fund activists, that's the Bracco Act, and there are also uh, uh, voices that call to limit the mechanism of shareholder proposals. So I think, so, so that kind of shifts the debate in the sense that uh, uh, actually the players who used to object uh, federalization of corporate law are now supporting uh, these federal rules in order to limit the uh, development in private ordering that, that kind of uh, empower shareholders. So, so it, it starts to look more like the, 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 the debate is really uh, uh, shareholders versus managers power rather than if it's state or, or federal regulation. Uh, and, and I think uh, for the future of corporate law, 
the main question is, is whether or not uh, these kind of rules that might limit private ordering are, 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 will, will pass because uh, uh, proxy advisory companies have very significant influ influence on uh, corporate governance, uh, hedge fund activists as well, and shareholder proposals as well. Uh, and if they are going to be limited by federal regulations, I think that uh, that will significantly um, weaken uh, shareholder power and uh, will result in uh, less changes in corporate governance. So what we see now with majority voting and proxy access is less likely to happen if these rules pass. And uh, as uh, Professor Curtis noted, we are probably going to see more companies resisting that, and the question will be, uh, uh, are these the right companies that resist uh, or not? So, uh, uh, for example, when we look uh, at evidence from proxy access uh, shareholder proposals, uh, a recent study finds that uh, companies that resisted these proposals, managers that tried to exclude this proposal, that asked the SEC to provide them no action letter so that they don't have to bring the proposal up to a shareholder vote, and in many cases uh, received a no action letter from the SEC, uh, uh, are, were actually the manager of those firms that the market thought are going to benefit most from uh, proxy access uh, provisions. So when it, it seemed like the proxy uh, access law was about to pass, the market increase for these companies was the highest. So. Um, so uh, I think that if we limit shareholder proposals and limit uh, proxy advisory companies, we'll probably see a larger group of these resisting firms uh, with potentially some cost to uh, shareholders. So um, I, I was especially interested in one of the points that uh, McCall raised, which was um, the, 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 the possibility that we might be entering in a world where groups that used to focus more on the use of federal law might be shifting to the use of, of, of state prerogative and vice versa. I think that's an interesting dynamic and one that we um, have certainly seen in other types of contexts. I guess I think about the, um, the, the balance between federal and state law um, as a matter of industry regulation. I, I think to take a different slice of it, um, I think if you're looking at the financial services industry, then there's been a real uh, a phenomenal change, right, in the regulation. Um, and I think it's really moved um, um, directly to the federal level. I think Dodd-Frank is something that banks and financial services institutions pay an awful lot of attention to. Um, I think once you move outside uh, of the financial services industry, um, that's a lot less true. And I, and I, you know, just to be provocative on a nice um, uh, spring day, um, you know, I'm <laughs> impressed by the crowd. I actually think that federal uh, regulators have not done as much as we might have thought uh, was going to happen after the 2000, uh, 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And I, I say that for a few reasons. First, I don't think they've moved in some directions that they could have moved into. Um, one of the examples that's uh, put out there is information disclosures on political activity of corporations. Um, that's an area where there's been a pretty you know, consistent cry among some people to say, hey, if our corporations are going to be spending money on uh, political activity, we need to know about what's being spent. And the SEC um, has resisted making a move in, in that direction. I think that continues to be a live issue, but um, I'd be surprised if there's the federalization of that specific topic over the next uh, couple of years. Conversely, I think that some of the areas where there has been federalization of corporate governance, again, I'm talking about the non-financial sector, um, more in the, the regular corporate governance that applies to normal corporations, has not been as effective as some people might like to say it is. Um, and you know, to, to give two quick examples, 
Um, first off, one of the areas where I think there has been a clear federalization relates to the, regula to the regulation of auditors, right? So post Sarbanes-Oxley, there's been this um, uh, uh, peekaboo, which is not exactly an acronym that makes a lot of sense if you look at the letters, but you know, peekaboo has uh, been a federal uh, 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 initiative to oversee the auditors. I hope that some of you have followed the KPMG scandal uh, that's been unfolding over the last couple of days, because I think that really calls into question what's the efficacy of peekaboo. For those of you that hasn't, um, Peekaboo has been basically um, selecting a handful of situations where it's going to um, double check what the auditors have been doing for specific audits to try to figure out whether or not they've been um, effectively conducting their audits of, of, of a variety of corporations. And over the last couple of days, it's emerged that KPMG um, had access through leaks in advance of several of the companies that Peekaboo was going to evaluate them on and was able to use that information in order to conduct their audits accordingly and be really, really, really careful with the five companies that they were going to be checked on. Um, you know, that's information that you would like to have. And uh, it went to the highest levels of KPMG. Um, you know, their, their senior auditors were fired this year, five or this week, five of their senior auditors in connection with that. So, you know, I think that's calling into question what exactly um, is the efficacy of regulation along these lines. I think the other area where um, uh, the federal uh, regulations have, have been enacted relates back to something that um, Professor Curtis mentioned earlier, which is the um, topic of executive compensation. Um, um, I think a big initiative there has related to these say on pay votes, which are now um, um, obligatory for shareholders under a certain, um, a certain time cycle. Um, however, I think um, it's important to look at what exactly has been the results of these say on pay votes. So this data is a little bit um, old, but I don't think it's changed uh, dramatically in the last year. If you go back to 2015, there were 2,887 say on pay votes, where shareholders had a non-binding vote saying, do you like our pay or do you not like our pay for executive comp? Um, out of those 2,887 votes, 2,818 votes were yes. Things are fine. We're not going to worry about it. So you're talking about a very small handful of situations. The shareholders have said, you know, we don't really like what's happening with executive compensation. Um, over the last year, um, one of the proxy advisory firms has sort of you continue to follow this and, and, and look at whether or not there's going to be pushback on executive pay. And um, they've said, oh, well, there's been a real change in 2016. All of a sudden, we're starting to see much more momentum away from support from uh, executive leaders on their comp thing. And the data they're citing for that is the percentage of those votes that are between 50% approval and 70% approval. And they say, back in 2015, you know, we only had about 4% of the situations where there were those close passages. And now in 2016, it looks like we're up to 6% of companies that are at those close passages. So I think there's been really little um, pushback, you know, and I think it, it calls to question the extent to which um, people really are dissatisfied with the levels of executive compensation. So I think for a variety of reasons, you know, it is important to split out financial services from everything else. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure that, um, that we might view federal regulation, at least in some of these recent areas, as, as, as accomplishing all the goals that people might have thought they would have accomplished at the outset. Great. Um, so if indeed uh, we see some rollback of the federalization of corporate governance, um, particularly I would say in the non-financial uh, area, setting, setting banks aside, um, we saw this interesting dynamic with 14A11 where Delaware sort of stepped a little bit into that gap and then 
there's dramatic increase uh, in, in proxy access as a result of that. Uh, what impact at the state level might we expect to see if there were changes on, say, say on pay or some of these other areas um, where the federal government relegated some of that uh, control uh, back to the states uh, to incorporate into their corporate law uh, how they see fit? And I'll start with you. I have my call. Oh, yeah, that's sure, the um, so I, I think that uh, both Sarbanes and, and um, Dodd-Frank haven't intruded that much upon the state's uh, uh, main prerogatives and, and subjects. So, you know, Delaware courts have always uh, given lots of deference to compensation issues. Uh, they are pronounced against and against again the view that they do not want to decide uh, what's the appropriate compensation. This is something from the market to decide, and they're only going to monitor the process of awarding compensation, and this is really what they're doing. This is their business. So so uh, I, I don't expect them to, to um, make any change, even if uh, uh, the advisory votes are to be uh, repealed. Uh, and um, I think that um, Similarly, uh, 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 the other uh, issues uh, that's related to surveillance probably are more uh, for the financial uh, institutions and would affect states less. One, one uh, uh, issue is independent directors, uh, which was um, mandated by uh, surveillance Oxley and the listing standards. Uh, already then, uh, many companies had the majority of independent directors, pre-SOX uh, and pre-delisting standards, but not all of them. And then 2002-2003, uh, 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 all listed companies were required to have a majority of independent directors and also committees uh, of only, that consist only of independent directors. Uh, and Delaware courts have kind of encouraged that uh, pre-SOX. Uh, by giving deference to certain decisions only to boards that had a majority of independent directors. And this is uh, probably part of the reasons why so many companies already had the majority of independent directors. So also here again, I think the Delaware will probably continue uh, uh, its, its um, theme of awarding more deference to a majority of independent uh, directors. Uh, now having said that, I think that there is a shift uh, nevertheless, there is a shift uh, uh, in power and influence to some extent from states, uh, but that shifts, of course, because of the importance of shareholder proposals process and the SEC role in this uh, process. Uh, so as I mentioned before, uh, uh, the recent changes were promoted and created primarily by shareholder proposals, the proxy access rule, the majority voting rules. These are all governance changes that were, were kind of pushed by shareholders submitting proposals to a shareholder vote, and if the uh, uh, vote is supportive and, and the company <coughs> implements the proposal, then the bylaws typically are being changed and the company governance has been changed. And, and, and that uh, uh, um, was adopted by many companies. A vast majority of S&P 500 companies have implemented majority vote terms, and it looks like the same process is happening these days with uh, proxy access rules. During this process, managers uh, uh, can uh, resist the proposal uh, by asking the SEC for a no-action letter that states that the SEC will not act against them 
in the event that they exclude the proposal, the, sh the proposal that was submitted by a shareholder for a governance change, and not bring it up to a shareholder vote. If, if they receive such a letter from the SEC, then they exclude the proposal and shareholders do not, do not get the opportunity to vote on it. Uh, apparently, uh, managers uh, asked in the last 10 years, asked a uh, uh, contested proposal, asked to exclude them uh, in 40% of the cases. And the SEC provided no action letter for 75% of this request. So 30% of these proposals are being excluded, and that's a significant portion. So uh, this dynamic of whether or not to exclude these proposals has become, uh, again, influential and consequential for companies' governance. So in that sense, there is a lot of power uh, uh, at the SEC decision-making process. And, uh, and, uh, and this power uh, is becoming influential because of, of uh, how dominant these processes are being. So, so, so one uh, uh, nice and, and uh, famous example is what happened with proxy access and Whole Foods management. So uh, shareholders submitted a proxy access proposal to Whole Foods, uh, offering that Whole Foods implement proxy access to its bylaw. And um, management wanted to contest the proposal based on exception to Rule 14A8 that uh, uh, includes several exceptions. Uh, um, however, uh, because of what uh, Professor Curtis mentioned, that Delaware has enacted a specific rule for proxy access that allows changes to the bylaws to implement proxy access, some of the, these exceptions that management usually uses did not apply in the case of proxy access. So instead, management of Whole Foods decided to become creative and to use a, a different exception, which is uh, there is already a conflicting proposal. So if there is already a conflicting proposal, managers are allowed uh, to, to exclude the proposal and again would typically ask the SEC for a no action letter before they do so. Uh, however, there was no conflicting proposal, so managers uh, drafted a conflicting proposal, uh, which was somewhat different from the shareholder proposal. The shareholder proposal was the typical uh, common proposal that was similar to the SEC rule that was struck down, which basically is called a three-by-three three proposal. A shareholder who holds 3% of the uh, shares for three years is allowed to uh, um, nominate a director and, I mean, shareholders always allowed to nominate directors to the, to, uh, to the elections, but um, what the proxy access rule of, uh, adds is that the, sh the shareholder can add the materials of this director to the proxy package the company is sending to the other shareholders. Because otherwise, if you want to uh, nominate a candidate to the board, you'll have to file with the SEC and send the materials to all of the shareholders, and that could be prohibitively costly. And we're talking about uh, uh, large numbers here. So. Uh, so that was the shareholder proposal was a three by three proposal. The management of Whole Foods uh, drafted a different proposal. Uh, I think it was uh, you'd have to be a, sh a shareholder for at least five years and hold at least 9%. Sure enough, there was not even one shareholder uh, in Whole Foods that met these uh, standards because the proposal was drafted uh, to, to make sure that no one meets the standard. Uh, the management of Whole Foods requested a no action letter from the SEC and received a no action letter from the SEC. And then uh, several other companies followed with this uh, uh, relatively aggressive uh, strategy. Chipotle, I think, was the next, and, and, and uh, 
uh, companies started to, to draft a, a conflicting proposal and ask uh, to exclude shareholder proposal. Uh, then in a surprising move, uh, around a month later, the SEC uh, announced that they are um, taking back the, law, the no action letter and that they have to reconsider the issue. I think this is the first time that this happened, uh, that the SEC is, is uh, kind of uh, uh, pulling back a no action letter. Uh, and, and eventually they came with a change to the policy saying we cannot allow this because that would uh, really uh, uh, take the, 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 the bite out of uh, uh, Section 14A8 because uh, you can always do that for every proposal. And, and that means, so, but, but uh, uh, this dynamic really uh, represents how this, this channel has become important and, uh, and the SEC power is now uh, uh, influential more than it used to be. I, I can be brief. Um, I think Delaware is in a really interesting position right now. I think that um, there is a lot of action continuing to go on at Delaware, right? Certainly outside the financial sector. And I think in part that's um, driven um, by one of our successful graduates, Travis Laster, who was uh, put on the court, um, you know, maybe six, seven years ago, and I think has been a big force of nature in Delaware. Um, but I, I think in, uh, in part, there will continue to be a lot of action in Delaware. I think the, the one issue that I'm watching closer than others is shareholder litigation um, in Delaware and how shareholder litigation is handled there. Um, in recent years, there's been um, a very interesting back and forth between um, the possibility of corporations enacting bylaws that either um, require all litigation to be brought within the Delaware courts, so form selection bylaws, or um, fee shifting bylaws that say if you're a plaintiff shareholder and you bring a lawsuit and you don't substantially win everything you wanted to win, um, you're going to have to reimburse the corporation for its fees in defending against the lawsuit. Um, Delaware took a pretty close look at both of those lawsuits um, and they said, um, first off, on forum selection, we will uphold those forum selection provisions as long as you bring your cases in Delaware, right? You can't say <laughs> that you can use another uh, jurisdiction, but you can um, use state Delaware as your, as your case and if you're a Delaware corporation, we'll uphold that. Um, the, on the fee-shifting bylaws, uh, they actually said no. They said, we're not going to allow you to enact fee-shifting bylaws. We think that goes too far and will tilt the prevalence of shareholder litigation um, a, a, away from, from being a force of corporate governance. And so I think that was the one issue where um, people thought it might be a salient enough of a decision against management that corporations might actually think about shifting outside of Delaware into other, um, other jurisdictions. I don't think we've seen that. I don't think we're going to see that, at least not yet. I think that there are a couple of other um, battlefield issues that are going to be playing out in, in this area um, related to the use of arbitration provisions to, to, to corral um, shareholder litigation and possibly the use of these new no-pay bylaw provisions that just say we won't, won't, won't pay for, for your side of the litigation no matter what. So those are still emerging, but I do think that one of the hot areas to watch uh, in, in, in Delaware and in state corporate governance will remain um, shareholder litigation at least for the next few years. To that, I would only add that the Delaware courts understand that they have an excellent reputation for um, delivering technically accomplished decisions and also that the fact that they are non-ideological and viewed as fair. Uh, they recognize that they face competition from other states and that right now, while other states can and do make use of Delaware's uh, corporate law precedents, they can't replicate its judiciary. And Delaware courts, I think, are also extremely aware of the fact that if things look messed up, that the federal government will flex its powers more. 
So that I think um, uh, has been true for a long time, and I think that it's a sometimes a, a tough tightrope to walk. But I think the Delaware judges are certainly aware of it, and will continue to do so. Yeah, and just uh, stepping outside of my moderator role for a minute, <laughs> the, um, I just wanted to highlight um, from Nepal's comments the role of exchanges as another institution that can um, step in with rules that are you know, not mandatory, but also attached to something important that firms want and could conceivably step in if the federal government uh, steps back in various aspects. And also, you know, we've talked a lot about the shareholder initiatives uh, for proxy access. And looming in the background here is that shareholders have become quite effective at getting what they want with the help of Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, um, and 14A8 to get things in front of the shareholders for at least an advisory vote and to bring things to management's attention. And so one wonders, in light of some of these comments, the remaining importance of um, sort of any mandatory terms, because if shareholders want to keep it, they now have uh, a model for making effective change. Um, though looming in the background is the SEC's capacity to issue no action letters that it could also be subject to policy changes uh, going forward. Um, so in the interest of time, I, I want to skip down the list a little bit and ask about um, a sort of comparative uh, angle here. The, the UK has much more uh, direct shareholder control in corporate governance. Um, it's not nearly as controversial there. And the US management has sort of fought this uh, tooth and claw um, as various uh, changes have come along. And we still remain fairly far short. Why is this so much more controversial among uh, US companies and in the US than in some other parts of the world where it's just accepted that shareholders ought to have these rights to intervene? and firm governance. Um, and maybe we'll start with George on that. Yeah, I think shareholder power is an interesting one, and I think it's tricky because um, there's a, you know, as with many areas of the law, there's a good news story and there's a bad news story. And I think the U.S. is in part trying to sort out how do we distinguish between good situations and bad situations. What do I mean by that? Um, a good situation would be one where you are worried about the internal management. You think they're um, not terribly responsive to the current market environment. Um, to take a, a possible current example, McCall mentioned Whole Foods. Well, again, they've been in the news this week because there's been an activist shareholder who stepped in, has bought 9% of Whole Foods, has teamed up with the New York Times uh, food critic Mark, Mark Bittman to, to basically say, look, we think we can do a lot more in Whole Foods. And then their share price has clearly uh, languished historically. Um, in response, their, their, their price has jumped up, I think, almost 10% this week. So. That might be a situation where there's actually um, a really good role for shareholder activism to play. Um, on the bad news story, I think there um, are situations where it's possible that shareholder activists are stepping in to try to make money quickly for themselves in a way that might not be in the long-term interest of all shareholders. Um, activist shareholders don't owe fiduciary duties normally to the other shareholders, right? The board does, and I think that can present situations where they might have incentives to come in quickly, make a change happen that might spark a short-term jump, but might not be in the ultimate long-term run interest of the company. Um, many of you in the room were in my corporations class this past fall, right? I hope you remember 
um, when we had our guest speaker from, uh, from Netflix who uh, came in and talked a little bit about Netflix's episode with shareholder activism, I think it's a really interesting counterexample because you know, they had um, Carl Icahn you know, come in under a scenario where they were trying to pivot from sending you DVDs by the mail to having this streaming business. And Icon basically set, came in and said, look, I think your shares are undervalued. I want an activist play. I want you to sell yourself to Apple. And Netflix managers said, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We have this really great vision for how we're going to transform this company and make you know, billions and billions and billions. We just need time to do it. And so they resisted. And eventually, as um, Icon hung out with them more and more and more, he started saying, yeah, you know what, these managers are pretty good, you know, and the price kept going up and up and up. And, you know, I, I guess we don't need to replace the managers and have them sell out to Apple. Um, and in fact, he actually sold his stock too quickly. He wishes he would have held on to his Netflix because it's continued to skyrocket. And so I think buckling under shareholder activist pressure in that scenario would be another counterexample of sort of the, the bad news story where shareholder activism might fail due to short-termism. And so I think um, the, the, the truth is probably that, that we need a more nuanced understanding of you know, when is shareholder activism um, um, effective and, and, and a good and when does it actually cause other types of concerns. And I think um, um, resistance over having a, a way to, to sort that out is perhaps what's led the U.S. To, to lag a little bit in some other areas. I think I, I couldn't agree more uh, with what George said. That the, the really the, the goal of a policymaker should be to try to sort these cases, uh, which is uh, which is a challenging goal and and is not an easy job. Never was, uh, but I think that's a really interesting question because you know I grew up in Israel where the where the also the is much more pro-regulation uh, than the U.S. and you know I think that viewing uh, um, things here, of course, and there. Uh, 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 make me think that a lot of, of it is influenced by uh, history and ideology. So if, if you know if the if the starting point was more regulation and more shareholder power, then it's it's like this is the the status quo. And if it's not, then we feel like it's a change. Uh, so so uh, uh, that shows how much these issues are also affected by uh, ideology. And but I think that in order to do a good job in sorting uh, uh, the good stories and the bad stories and trying to limit uh, the bad stories, uh, it would be good to try to step away a little bit from ideology and and not uh, uh, have to be committed to you know a certain position for and against because what the data we have more and more data recent years and the data shows us that life is complicated it's frustrating but there are no easy answers and you know we like to think that there, there are easy answers either the markets are good or the regulation is good but but this is not life this these are complicated institutions and and to design the right uh, incentives and the right uh, 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 level of intervention that would, would reach an optimum is a very complicated uh, project that requires a lot of uh, testing and, and discretion and, and testing again and again. And in order to do it right, I think it's a, it will be a good thing to kind of step away a little bit from uh, a certain position or a certain politics or ideology that we have and kind of look at reality and try exactly to sort uh, the cases and see how we can limit the bad cases b but still let the good uh, cases uh, flourish. Yeah, of course I agree with what George and McCall just said. I'd add two things though, that I think deserve to be in the mix. The first is that there was more of a perceived need, and I think probably correctly, for the kind of regulation that's been discussed in the UK and Israel because both those nations along with a lot of others have more instances of dominant shareholders 
who were in who were very very close with management. So in the U.S., we could say that shareholders were already pretty powerful, or at least more powerful. So I think that there's been a bit less of a perceived need for some of the um, some of the uh, initiatives that um, that we've been discussing you know, that that are, are grouped under the the very large umbrella of of shareholder empowerment. And second, I think that in the U.S. right now, there's a lot of concern that as more parts of U.S. society become politicized, that ideological struggles that traditionally in American society were carried out in a political realm, that there were powerful social norms for keeping in that political realm. Things have begun spilling out. They've spilled out into sports. Um, and I think there's a real fear that they'll spill out more into corporate governance. Great. Um, so I do want to make sure that we leave some time uh, for our students to ask questions of the panelists. Um, I do have a couple more questions, but uh, I want to give you a chance to buzz in. So are there any students who'd like to uh, ask anything at this point? Don't be shy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, the let me run turn back uh, because it's relevant uh, to the point that Julia just made that this model of um, <clears throat> proxy access that shareholders have gotten pretty good at getting success at has given rise to some other items on the shareholder agenda uh, for reform, which include things like director tenure and ensuring that directors don't stay on the board uh, too long, uh, board diversity, including gender diversity, which I, I think is the agenda behind the statue that was, was put up across from the, the bull on Wall Street uh, by State Street. Um, board evaluations, uh, mandatory retirement ages, these are all things that are sort of starting to edge on this agenda that's been dominated first by majority voting provisions and then uh, by proxy access over the last few years. Um, are any of these uh, causes that you see as likely to gain a lot of credence uh, with shareholders that they might have some success uh, in reforms along these dimensions? Are there other things that might be on the agenda uh, for shareholders as they seek other mechanisms to keep boards responsive and to hold boards accountable? I think it's excruciatingly hard to have boards be accountable and responsive and not surprisingly there's frustration. Um, with with uh, with boards, and then there's sometimes a gravitation toward fixes that are meant to uh, bring in some grand new era, and they tend to have a little bit of a faddish overtone to them. And so, um, and a lot, and not, and not surprisingly, uh, as the data rolls in, um, uh, big changes in board competence and accountability are are not detected. And then things move on to the next big thing. Uh, board diversity is, uh, gender diversity is a particularly, I think, salient example because there were some uh, early studies that got a great deal of publicity about how having more women on boards was going to enhance corporate performance and so forth. But then um, more, um, more uh, as, as time went on, uh, those uh, those gains turned out to be uh, non-existent or, or just a very, very extremely small. So I think going forward there may, I, I hope there will be more um, 
more focus on, on realism and uh, less focus on uh, sort of a herd mentality of running to the next big thing. But who knows? Right, so, so you know, having uh, sat on a board for a while and, and the work that uh, uh, Quinn and I did together, I, I agree that, um, and what, my, what this experience has taught me is that there's a lot of importance to the dynamics within the board, to intra-board politics, uh, and, and these are things that uh, uh, we do not observe, and uh, these are things also that I agree uh, 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 with uh, Julia that, that are not, uh, uh, it's hard to influence them just by structural uh, changes. Uh, so, uh, but I think that um, they have a lot of importance. So, for example, maybe uh, uh, one reform that I think helped for that is the requirement that, uh, uh, again, uh, our paper look at the, the requirement to have executive sessions, so to have uh, meetings only of the independent directors so that they can discuss issues without uh, the inside directors, and, and things that focus more on this intra-board politics and, and intra-board dynamics. Now, having said that, uh, uh, along these lines, I think that probably the most important influential change has been the constant nominations of uh, hedge fund uh, activist board members, and this is uh, an increasing phenomenon, we see hedge funds are focusing more and more on this rather than on uh, other strategies, uh, which also has the benefit of making kind of a c more commitment to, to, to a longer uh, term focus on the company. Uh, uh, and they succeed uh, in nominated board members, sometimes as a result of a proxy fight, sometimes as a result of, uh, of a settlement uh, uh, before a uh, uh, proxy f uh, fight even occurs. Uh, I think that will have a lot of influence on our boards. Uh, again, uh, uh, from from experience and also from everything we read, uh, you know, for, it's a big change. Board members used to to be groups that really know each other very well for years and work together. So it's it's a significant change, and and having uh, other people that kind of sit in the meetings even and and, and just uh, listen and observe. So. Uh, by itself will have a lot of influence and and uh, uh, supporting this we we just saw a, a new settlement where hedge fund activists asked to nominate a board member just to be an observer uh, in the board and even not having a voting power but kind of sit in in this uh, uh, meetings so uh, but in most cases uh, the board members sit on a lot of committees they vote uh, we now have uh, uh, examples of settlements of hedge fund activists with boards. This example showed that they typically require to have a board member on each committee, uh, maybe also in order to prevent cases where the company will establish a committee without them and make all the difficult <laughs> decisions there. But uh, 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 they want to take part in the strategic decisions. They want to sit on the strategic committee. Many times they'll chair the strategic committee. So I think that change, uh, 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 is going to have by itself uh, a lot of influence on board dynamics and on their result. And we still, we still yet to see what these influences will be. I mean, my, my take would be that um, any meaningful change to what board, boards do is less likely to happen through corporate law than just through um, um, interpersonal pressures. Right? I mean, I think that's where you see a lot of, um, of what's different now about um, what was going on in the, er in the early 2000s. I mean, I think sitting on a board is really different today than it was 15 or 20 years ago. I think it's a lot less fun. I think um, it's a lot harder work. I think you, 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 know, you earn your money more than showing up once every 90 days, you know, having read through a, a short stack of papers that the managers put in front of you before the meeting. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that 
the law has, has, has done a lot. Um, Quinn's right that proxy access is now um, prevalent. Last I checked, there were half of the firms at the S&P 500 that had enacted a proxy access um, rule. But come on. I mean, you know, having a rule that says 3% of shareholders, you know, a 3% stake held over three years can elect 20% of the directors. Um, I don't think that's had a significant impact yet. It's possible that it might down the road, but I don't think it's likely to have as much of an impact as we might guess. I think what is likely to have an impact relates back to what McCall was talking about, which is you get an activist holder to all of a sudden buy 10% of the, of the company and say, I'm going to board member now, right? And, and I think that's where we have seen some change um, in a way that I do think has, has continued to influence what exactly happens within the board. And I think boards now are more responsive. And I think to some extent they're trying to self-regulate in order to avoid um, a, a legal reaction, which is probably not a bad thing. You guys must have questions. <laughs> Yes. Do you think with the Grand. of firms uh, issuing new class voting, it's going to Wonderful. Yeah, great, excellent. So we also, the other thing that's happening is we also see an increase in uh, IPOs, because you can really do it only at IPO, IPOs that uh, have a dual class structure, meaning that uh, rather than having one share, one vote per share for all shares, the shares of the founders hold a much larger amount of votes, Many sometimes we even 10 votes per share, uh, that uh, could give them effective control in the company. Uh, we see that uh, among very successful companies, right? Uh, uh, Facebook, Google, people tend to, I think it's concentrated more in uh, the high-tech industry. Uh, again, uh, as, as uh, in lines with what uh, George has said before, uh, as every other issue in corporate governance, there is a good story and there's a bad story. Uh, the bad story is that this creates in entrenchment and separation between uh, ownership and control. You get control, but you don't have a lot at stake in terms of your money. Uh, the good story is that it gives you kind of freedom to focus on your long-term plan without intervention from shareholders who might not uh, understand or appreciate your uh, long-term plan. Uh, and, uh, and, and maybe this is also a response to hedge fund activists. Also here, the goal will be to try to sort out the cases, to try to prevent uh, the bad cases and try to kind of, of uh, encourage the good cases. Uh, and whether or not it will increase the, the likelihood for federal regulation, uh, that's a good question. It, there is already um, a change in incentives in the sense that, and here we go back to the influence of the ISS, which also I think is highly influential, the proxy advisory companies. The ISS has now uh, issued a recommendation against having dual class and also noted that this will be uh, one of the considerations to vote against the board in the annual meeting. So, the, so another, uh, I think, influential force on board's dynamics is the ISS recommendation. The ISS now have a list of all of the things that might make them recommend against board members in annual meetings. And I think this list is also a very influential creating pressure on companies because the uh, board members know that if the ISS will issue a recommendation against them in the annual meeting, it's likely that they will uh, receive a lot of uh, withheld votes, a lot of votes against them. So the dual class uh, 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 companies just enter this list now. So we'll, we'll have to see if that will have influence on our uh, IPOs. I mean, I, th I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see lots of activity in that area. I think dual class is a really salient issue that people like to talk about because it's interesting. But I think um, the, the chances of having an established company, right? I mean, you're not going to see Ford say, you know, or you might, right? You're not going to see lots of companies say, oh, we're going to set up one of these dual class stocks. I think it's, it's 
you know, highly specialized. I think um, Snapchat um, um, thought they could get away with it, right? And they did, right? I mean, they issued um, their IPO with the dual class. I just checked their stock price uh, a second ago. Um, and it's not doing that great, right? It's below um, what they initially issued at. And so I think if Snapchat had succeeded and um, and then I think that's true for a variety of reasons. But I think if their stock price continued to trickle up, then more people might say, well, let's give it a go too. If it worked for you know, those guys in Venice, maybe we can you know, have a shot at it. But uh, I, I really do think that um, it's, it's likely gonna be limited to a relatively small type of group of companies. Other questions? Other questions? Yes, um, so Sean. I know that um, there's been, Delaware walks a fine line Okay, so um, Nevada corporate law, and that's important uh, to repeat and repeat, is very different from Delaware. Even though for many years we assumed that Nevada follows the lower law, that hasn't been true at least since 1987. Uh, Nevada uh, releases uh, directors from uh, significant duties, including uh, the duty of loyalty, as long as that they not conduct also intentional misconduct, fraud, or knowing violation of law. In Delaware, the duty of loyalty is mandatory. It's one of the only parts of Delaware law that is mandatory. So that's a significant difference. If you go to the website of the St Secretary of State of Nevada, uh, you will find the Secretary of State describing this difference as a reason to incorporate in Nevada. If you go to proxy uh, materials of companies that move to Nevada, you'll find this difference is de described in details by the general counsels. Uh, so we are finally catching up on that. Uh, 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 not everywhere in the U.S. the duty of loyalty is mandatory. Uh, in Nevada, uh, really, it's limited only to cases of intentional misconduct, fraud, or knowing violation of law. And the courts have are interpreting that again and again as a, a, a different law with an intention to provide more and more uh, protection to directors than Delaware does. Uh, now, uh, Nevada is is pushing this and, and has been marketing this for a while. We are not sure exactly when it started, uh, when exactly the Secretary of State started to include this, but Nevada actually has been marketing this for a while. Uh, I heard that in ABA meetings they have like this uh, full power, uh, full blown uh, PowerPoint presentation where they explain all of this. So they definitely have an interest in marketing that. I think they are less concerned at this point about the possibility that this will trigger um, uh, uh, federal intervention. Interestingly, I think that Delaware officials do not have an interest in kind of make you know a, a lot of, of noise around the Nevada case because on the one hand they, they think uh, that this law is, is not appropriate but on the other hand I think uh, they understand that that could be used as, as a reason to argue for more federal regulation so they kind of not make, uh, 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 don't, don't draw a lot of, attract of, of attention to that uh, even though they clearly disagree with uh, this kind of law. We are out of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but thank you all for coming on. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you.